Welcome back to the Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. As advisors to some of the wealthiest families in the country, the Rate of Change is a podcast designed to help you in the pursuit of building long-term wealth through the insights of some of the brightest minds in asset management. I'm your host, Murdoch Gaddy, and in today's rockcast, we're speaking with Andrew Lockhart, the Managing Director of Metrics. Metrics are a leading Australian non-bank corporate lender and alternative asset manager, specializing in fixed income, private credit, equity, and capital markets. Metrics currently manages roughly $14 billion and gives investors access to these strategies via a range of unlisted and listed managed funds. With this approach, the flagship metrics direct income fund targets a return of RBA cash rate plus 3.25%. And as of the 28th of July, the fund has returned 7.93% for the past year and has averaged 6.77% since inception. Andrew gives his insights of the origins of metrics, their process and lending philosophy. He also outlines the private lending universe, the overall health of the loans in the portfolios and gives his thoughts on the outlook for private lending in current markets. In particular, I found the conversation on commercial property to be quite insightful. So before we get into the podcast, I'd also like to encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the rockcast and to keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at mgaddy at ywm.com.au. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Andrew Lockhart, welcome to the Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Thank you very much for having me. Why don't we uh, kick things off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, your formative years, and how you got into financial markets? Sure. Um, well, I'm probably pretty stable. I, uh, I actually worked for National Australia Bank for 26 years. So, um, really, you might school. know my dad. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Do you know Peter Gaddy? Yes, I know Peter very well. Yeah, he's yeah, my dad. Peter, he was there. Peter used to, yeah. In fact, your sister used to uh, your sister used to babysit my kids. What Saskia <laughs> or Senya? Seriously? Yeah, that's good. That's good. We, we, yeah. I was not expecting <laughs> that. <laughs> that was years yeah. ago. Yeah. Yeah, I used to drop Saskia home at uh, at uh, over at Chatswood there. Really, she's gonna yeah. laugh about this. I'm about to send her through the podcast and go. It's just, look, it's a thing on finance, da, da da da. But I think you should listen to this. You might have a giggle. What a small world. Yeah, I think she would have been. I don't know how old she was then, but she couldn't drive, obviously. Yeah, so she must have been, you know, fifteen or sixteen. And uh, wow, yeah, no, she was great. And, That's uh, so, so yeah, funny. After you probably know more about kids. my family than I do. <laughs> Your dad's a good fellow. Oh, excellent. All right, well, <laughs> let's get back on track. <laughs> it's not a podcast about me. It's a podcast about you, mate. But so, all right, so, yeah, cut off. Cut yeah. off. <laughs> all right, so um, how'd you get into finance uh, after now? Um, or- yeah, yeah, so I um, basically just uh, finished finished school at the time uh, and uh, and just had a had an opportunity to get a job working for for nab and um, and so I took the job worked for nab full-time and and studied part-time so I, I went to university and did my first degree uh, part-time while, while working full-time at the bank so you know going off and doing lectures at night and all of those sorts of fun things and um, so that I was based in Brisbane when I first started and moved through a range of different roles uh, within the bank and then moved into the corporate and institutional part of the bank and uh, and was relocated down to Sydney in uh, the early 2000s. And so moved to Sydney in about 2002 and, um, and then worked in, a, again, a number of different roles within the bank. Uh, one of my last roles was um, in what they call leverage and acquisition finance, which is acquisition financing to support private equity firms where they're buying companies. And so in that role, uh, went through the global financial crisis uh, in that role. And I guess at that time, I saw what was really happening in terms of companies' ability to get access to debt financing and how reliant they were on on the banks. And, and as a result of that, I put a proposal to the NAB uh, to set up what has become metrics. And so uh, between sort of 2008 to 
2012, uh, spent a fair bit of time uh, trying to work through the different channels within NAB's business to finally get to a position where uh, National Australia Bank acquired 35% equity interest in the business that was Metrics Credit Partners. And myself and two of my partners then uh, uh, proceeded to try and raise capital from investors. So we spent, uh, we thought we'd been discovered, you know, we thought, uh, you know, all this institutional money from superannuation funds would be desperate to to get access to good quality, you know, lending assets in the in private markets. Unfortunately, for 12 months, uh, we weren't able to raise a cent and it wasn't until the back end of 2012, the, off the back of a cold call that I made, uh, we were able to secure our first institutional investor that uh, committed an amount of $75 million. And then in 2013, after only securing that one investor, uh, he was a bit frustrated that we hadn't set up the fund and threatened to withdraw his commitment if we didn't set up the fund. And so we um, we immediately resigned and, and, and launched the business. So we had one investor who invested $75 million and that's how we started in June of 2013. Now, um, 10 years later, uh, we've been very fortunate. We've now been able to build a business that manages in excess of $15 billion. Uh, We provide financing to over 300 individual companies in Australia. Uh, we've become the largest private debt manager in the Australian market. And um, we employ 120-odd people in the business based in Sydney, Melbourne, and expanded into Auckland in New Zealand. And uh, and now we're, we've even started raising money from offshore investors. And so we've got uh, investors from Japan and starting to attract interest from European and Canadian and American investors as well. So um, it's been uh, been a fun 10 years. It's been a very, very fun 10 years. So there's mm. uh, three structures currently around now, two listed uh, mm. one's the direct fund. Do you want to give a bit of color around um, the different strategies and how they're structured? Yeah, well, I've always formed the view that investors, you know, if they understand what, what they're trying to achieve, what return objective does an investor want to achieve, then really that return objective needs to marry up with the risk. And then for an, for an investment to be successful, investors need to know how do they control their money. So if, they want, if they're investing in managed funds, they can invest in a fund if it's delivering on the target return or their circumstances change they might want to withdraw their money. And so how investors gain you know, the right risk-adjusted return but also maintaining access to their capital and, and the power over that capital I think is important. And so we, we back in um, October of 2017, launched what is the Metrics Master Income Trust or MXT, which was the first ASX-listed um, credit fund or private debt fund. That was really, um, at the time we launched that, in, re- in response to the fact that most investors really had only had the opportunity to buy hybrids or put money on term deposit as the way in which they could get an income from sort of more stable assets. And so we, we thought that it would be a good opportunity for investors to gain exposure to private market loans to Australian companies but do it in a way where they could buy and sell those units on the exchange as a means to get liquidity. So if you think about our market, most Australian companies don't have a credit rating, so they're not rated by S&P or Moody's. We don't have a bond market of any you know, substantial size or scale. Most borrowers are pretty heavily reliant on the banks for funding. And so when you go through a period like the GFC, you realise how risky that is for Australian companies in terms of how they've diversified their funding sources. They're heavily reliant on the banks. And so if the banks choose not to be in a position or can't be in a position to lend because regulatory changes impact their business and becomes less appealing, those companies have got limited options in terms of how they finance their, their activities. And so you know, one thing we wanted to do was to provide a, an important source of non-bank finance to Australian companies, but equally creating an investment product that catered to that sort of need for people to be able to invest and get stability of capital with an attractive income that, you know, does better than, say, alternative assets like a hybrid or a deposit or a bond. And so that's the reason we launched MXT. And so we launched MXT in October 17. It seeks to deliver investors the RBA cash rate plus 3.25 net to an investor. 
at the moment in the last 12 months, it's uh, yielding in excess of close on 5% over the RBA cash rate. So RBA cash rate today, 4.1 plus around 5% in excess of 9% net. When you look at, um, you know, I was looking at a, at a 12-month term deposit uh, just before I came on the show, and they're around, you know, high fours to 5% was about the best rate that you could get for a 12-month term deposit. Now, obviously, a, an investment in MXT is not equivalent to a cash deposit. Uh, certainly, those that have got the benefit of a government guarantee of less than 250000 it's not a cash deposit. So there's greater element of risk, but what what an investor hopefully is picking up is excess return. Uh, but what we've also tried to do is demonstrate our skill set in terms of how we manage credit risk and diversify the portfolio so investors are not exposed to any one single large borrower exposure. So investors can invest in MXT. They get exposure to over 300 individual companies that we lend to, where the average exposure to any one individual company is around about half a percent. Income is distributed every month. So unlike that deposit example or a hybrid where income distributions are less frequent, uh, with MXT or MOT, the investor receives their income every month and they can buy and sell whenever they want on the stock exchange. So really it's giving them um, a daily liquid tradable um, investment that is a higher yielding, higher returning uh, instrument than they would in other alternative assets. So that's the reason for it. It's really being designed to to give investors an alternative. And and I sort of think that the un, whilst the traded price of MXT or MOT may change because of liquidity on the stock exchange, so if, you know people are buying and selling. The traded price may trade away from the quoted NAV of the fund. But the quoted NAV of the funds have been very stable since we launched them. You know, it listed at $2 and basically the, the traded or the the, um, the NAV of MXT has been stable at $2 since it's listed. Traded prices varied, um, like shares and other investments. Sometimes it trades at a premium, sometimes it's at a discount. But the fundamentals of what we've invested in have been very, very stable for investors. And I think one of the reasons for that is if you think about a loan, where you sit in the capital structure actually reduces risk. Obviously, equity is the asset class that is more volatile. Um, equity in people investing in shares or equity to get growth in earnings and growth in capital values. And, and equity is the asset class that is the highest risk in, in, in the context of a capital structure. So a loan or, or debt, particularly a secured debt, ranks in priority to all other creditors or claims against the company. And so if a company was to deteriorate, the impact in declining valuations or the fortunes of that company would be borne first by shareholders and then unsecured creditors and then finally by a lender. So that that equity really provides that buffer that protects our capital against the risk of loss. So um, a lot of people ask, and uh, you're seeing it quite a lot, because uh, everyone's used to essentially the bank's lending. You know, you, you got a business idea, you go to the bank, you get, you, you, you give your pitch, and they give you a loan, right? But since, ever since the GFC, they've kind of spun out that risk component, which is, I suppose, your business. Mm. So mm. Uh, there's a lot of listeners that really understand the context of this. But do you mind giving a bit of colour for people that really don't understand exactly what the opportunity is? Because when I'm discussing some of these strategies and they're in 9, 10, 11, and as you said correctly, they're looking at the term deposit and going, how can it be double? Like, isn't this risky? Um, can you actually explain mm. exactly what the opportunity is and why it exists? Yeah. So if you think about a bank, what what a bank is actually doing is, you know, they, they're taking money from retail or depositors and they'll pay you a rate. They borrow money in wholesale funding markets, issuing bonds to investors and they pay a rate. And then what they do is they then add a margin on top of that, which is paid to shareholders in the form of returns, right? Whereas what we're actually doing is providing to our investors the full return associated with the loan that we've made, less our management fee. Now, our management fee is materially lower than the excess NIM that's paid to shareholders. So if you think about when, when you put money on a deposit or you buy a bond and it's a bank bond, you're effectively providing financing to allow the bank to lend to the company. 
and then they will charge a higher fee and margin to that company and the excess return goes to shareholders. Whereas in our case, hopefully the excess return is going to the investor. And so we, we raise capital through the issuing units. That capital gets aggregated and we lend to companies. And so the returns, the areas that we lend are, we lend to corporates, so both large-scale publicly listed and private companies. So if you think about companies like, um, you know, Woolworths, Origin Energy, Ramsey Healthcare, uh, Steadfast, Brickworks, uh, Metcash, they're examples of companies that have borrowed money from banks and lenders, and we also provide financing to those companies. There's a range of private equity firm-owned companies, so companies like Arnott's, Time Zone, um, you know, a bunch of privately owned companies, you know, HealthScope, you know, the private hospital group and others. Uh, there's a range of property-related transactions we are involved in real estate, so residential high-rise apartment buildings or land subdivisions or big industrial developments. And then there's project financing, which is the fourth area where we lend, and that's usually, you know, toll roads like West Connext or the motor, um, Mornington Peninsula Motorway or the Victorian Cancer Centre are examples of, you know, Perth Stadium as an example where, you know, the, these are companies or projects that have borrowed money from banks and from other lenders and they've used that to, to build their business or their project, undertake the project. And that debt financing together with shareholders' capital is what you, is used to own the asset. Now, the, the, the risk to an investor in, in the equity is that the value of the company or the project might go up and down. For us as a lender, what we're trying to do is make sure that the value doesn't go below uh, how much you know we've lent. So equity wears that risk before we as a lender are exposed to, to any potential risk of loss. So yeah, I don't think it's ever been as easy as you've got a business plan, you go to the bank and the banks agree to fund you. Um, I think over over time, you know, banks and lenders like myself are pretty cautious in terms of thinking about what the risk is. And so what our role is as a lender is really to look at every business or project that we're involved in financing. And we undertake a lot of what we call due diligence. Um, so you're looking at financials, tax, legal structure, legal risks within the business, the commercial risk, what's management strategy, what's the position of the company and its industry, what is really going to drive the revenue associated with that company. So if you, you, know, if you think about it, a company's got a thousand customers, customers pay a certain amount each, you know, a thousand customers by $10 gives you the revenue that that company is going to generate, simplistically. Then Are you, you have mainly to lending to... Um property backed or essentially we you lend to a business that has no property 60, i know it takes a lot more work but what's the yeah, split no, no. We, we we lend um about 60 percent of the loans that we've made are to for property purposes so we have direct security over the property so a mortgage over the property or a fixed and floating charge over the company personal guarantees from from equity sponsors that's part of that security mix. But there are other companies where there are no hard assets in real estate and we're lending against the cash flow of that business. So invariably what you're looking for there are companies that are generating you know, good, strong earnings, well-diversified business models, well-positioned in their industry or structure. So if you think about you know, um, you know, services business like dental, dental care or uh, medical pathology businesses or, um, you know, they're sorts of companies where they may not own any property, but, you know, we're providing funding against those um, businesses and and uh, you're looking at what is the level of earnings that can be generated by that company, what's the cash that can be generated to be able to service and repay your debt. So with those um, uh, areas, you mentioned 60% in property, what's the sector risk in the portfolio? Because you said it covers quite now. What's, what's the breakdown? Yeah. It's interesting. Sector exposure is less of the less relevant metrics, right? So the most important thing is what exposure do you have to any one individual counterparty? So, like okay. for instance, if I say to you that we've got about 60% of our exposure in property-related debt, that gets then broken down into a mix of industrial, residential, hotels, 
Uh, you know, like for instance, we've financed, they're involved in the financing of the Sofitel Wentworth Hotel or the Hilton Hotel in Sydney. Um, you know, we might be financing, you know, 300 apartments being built in, in Western Sydney. Uh, it can be a whole range of things. And, it, and it's then spread geographically. So you, you've got to look at it in terms of what's the, what's, what's the, and each individual loan has different terms and conditions. So for instance, say I'm financing an industrial uh, property in, in the Port of Brisbane, it's going to be quite different risk profile to say um, a residential high density apartment building being built in you know, Sydney. Um, which will be different again to say, you know, a land subdivision in Melbourne. You've got three different borrowers, three different locations. The risk profile of each of those transactions will be quite different. So it's not like we lend the same loan to valuation ratio across each individual asset. What we're looking for is, say, in the case of the residential apartment building being built in Sydney, it might be that, you know, all of the apartments have been sold they're being pre-sold and so we're looking for completion of the project on completion of the project the consumers that are buying those apartments to live in buy those apartments and and they're the source of repayment of our facility so unlike a bank that well they'll provide a 25 30 year mortgage to a consumer maybe lend you know 85 90 percent of the value of the property for us what we're lending is maybe 60 percent of the value of that property on completion and our source of repayment inside two years is from the completion of the project and uh, the sale of the assets. So it's quite different. It, 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 the, the driver for us is, is you know, what's the driver of the cash flow? What's our source of repayment? What's the risk to that source of repayment? And then what are the ways in which we can structure the loan to mitigate any potential risk of loss of capital to us? So that might be... Well, look, I know, think you just touched on the main thing, loss of capital. So, yeah. and that's why I was asking the question, what's the breakdown? Um, because I'm speaking to lots of clients, people up Gold Coast way. Uh, there's, there's families, very big families up there that are probably the biggest families associated with building resi. They've just refused. They've just stopped. I heard, I was speaking to a mate the other day, um, it was just associated yeah. with a company up there that's running 52 cranes. No cranes yeah. work, uh, operational. No one's turning soil. Yes, you've got the Olympics yeah. coming in. So, and then you have a uh, number of people talk about oh. rates rising. And then everyone's like, oh, no, it'll be fine. They'll pause. The Fed just paused, but they're signaling they're going to keep on going. So uh, no one's seen it for a while, but people mention it in a whisper. They don't want it to happen, but people are discussing credit crisis. And you're starting to see um, a very a number of large uh, builders go under. You've seen them in Sydney, uh, you know, the MLC Centre, heaps of places. And then the, the domino impact, right? Um, so the, that's why I was asking what percentage of uh, how's it broken up in the fund? What's the liability there? Um, yeah. So again, very, what I'm we, very interested to hear your opinion yeah. on what's going on there. Yeah, look, I think it's it, the market conditions are pretty tough. You know, like if I look at you know residential markets around the country, you know, you've got very low supply, you've got very low vacancy rates, you've got rising rents, and you've got a very difficult construction market. You've had rising construction costs really since 2021. Uh, so 2022, you saw material construction cost rises. You've got issues around government planning approvals and uh, the speed of councils and governments to approve, you know, residential <coughs> development sites and those sorts of things. Um, you've had a lot of very wet weather um, through 2021 and 22. Uh, on the east coast of Australia, which delayed a lot of projects. So all of those sorts of things are things that can impact the viability or the profitability of a project. Our role as a lender, though, is to make sure that when we lend to those projects, that our risk is mitigated. And so, you know, if I'm lending for construction, you know, you'll have a construction contingency that says, okay, if there are cost overruns, we, we've already accommodated that in the project budget and it's funded. If there are delays to the delivery of the project because of inclement weather or union stoppages or COVID disruptions to supply chains, the, the project can sustain a, 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 an extended period of time where it can't be completed. And so what you're doing is, is as you assess those risks and you build in contingencies for time, for cost, for finance costs and everything, that has to be funded by equity. And so you're 100% right, there are builders, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress 
in different parts of the market. Um, but largely what, what's occurred is the risk has been borne by those that have entered into fixed price contracts and then been subjected to increasing building material prices that have flowed through. So as a lender, one of the things that we want is to make sure that when we lend money, we're lending against a fixed price contract so we know what the cost is going to be. We want to see an alignment between the interests of ourselves as a lender and the borrower. So we want to know that the borrower's got deep pockets and got the financial wherewithal. So if something goes wrong, it's the borrower who is going to put in the cash to correct any 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 shortfall. So, you know, if you think about it, say, say uh, you know, wet weather causes a delay in a project or rising interest rates, you know, force the finance costs higher means that the project margin might be squeezed and the project might not be as profitable as what was originally forecast when the developer entered into the project, but it doesn't mean that we as a lender should be wearing any risk. You know, that has to be borne by those that are intended to profit from it, which is equity. So if, you, if you're coming to a project, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to do this project and I'm going to make you know, 20% plus, and uh, it doesn't turn out that way, then our role as a lender is to make sure that we've protected our investors' capital and forecast those potential deteriorations or declines and that we can complete the project and hopefully the client will make money on the project, but they may not have made as much as they might have thought when they first went into the deal. You know, a lot of these, you know, to give you an idea, to bring on a residential development project in, say, in Sydney, you're talking, you know, five plus years. By the time you've bought the land, you've got the planning outcome, you've sold the project, you've negotiated all your construction costs and everything. These are long-term projects and um, you know, that's why you know they, they should be rewarded with good margins and they should be profitable projects. But uh, you know, in times when market conditions deteriorate, unfortunately, it may not always be the case. But um, you know, it's very different lending for a project compared to, say, lending to the contractor that's wearing that risk. So we don't lend to construction contractors Generally, a construction contractor works on a much finer margin. You know, mm. like if you're thinking about the property developer, he's bought the land, he's secured the development approval, he's negotiated the construction contracts, delivered the project, sold and marketed the property to, to purchases. There's a lot of work that goes into that as, as opposed to the one aspect, which is the delivery of the construction, which might be undertaken by a third-party builder. Now, those third-party builders have a role in maybe coordinating all of the various trades and monitoring the trades and, 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 and working through that. But their margins are much, much finer than, say, the developer who's taking more risk over a longer period of time and trying to generate a return on their capital. Where So we don't lend to the construction contractor. We want to lend to the landowner, the owner of the property. This is why I enjoy chatting to people of your ilk. You're pretty much at the <laughs> finger and the pulse. If you're looking after the money, you can see exactly what's happening across most industries. So yeah. that's so that's yeah. essentially yeah. So uh, as you can appreciate, the questions it's it's on it's in every single newspaper right now. You know the pressure's starting to build up. You know what's going to happen on the credit side. So, but. Uh, this, this uh, lovely podcast is not about the negatives. We would also like to discuss the opportunities out there. So since you're seeing a lot of other companies coming through, so what what interesting um, opportunities are you seeing in spaces uh, right now that you're lending to that you thought you may not have that in, uh, evolved in the past six months? Yeah, look, I think um, as a lender, I'm naturally, you know, risk averse and so you know we, we we're not looking to lend to a company that's going to shoot the lights out and make a lot of money and you know at the end of it we, we want to get well paid and and uh, and generate a, a good return for our investors capital but at the same time we're providing capital to support the growth or the project that's being undertaken by those that are taking the risk which is equity and so you know what I, what I want to do is make sure that when we lend, you know, we're lending to good quality companies, good quality management teams that are that are going to be able to execute on their strategy, and um, and 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 so it's more about avoiding things that might go wrong. And so you know, if you think about say more cyclical industries, mm. you know, they're, they're areas where we 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 avoid them because the earnings can be more volatile. So if you think about say a cyclical industry like agri. You know, you can have, you know, issues around commodity prices, production volumes, foreign currency, weather, trade disputes between government can all impact 
you know the price of, of and the and the earnings that you can generate as a as a as a agricultural company it doesn't mean that they're not good companies or that they're not a great investment. They're just more uh, their cash flows are more volatile and therefore, as a lender, you're not willing to take as much risk in terms of how much debt you would provide to those companies. So you'd have a very low level of debt. That's the kind of thing that we think about in terms of how we we go about lending. We're looking at you know, over long periods of time, and you know your, your your point about you know market conditions, you know because we're privy to private information from a whole range of companies, and the information that those companies provide to us as a lender is confidential between a lender and a and a borrower, and so we we respect the privacy of all the various companies that we provide financing to, but it does help inform your view of market risks. You know, you're lending to a wide range of companies. And I would sort of say, if if, if it's kind of why I asked the question. Reading, yeah, if you're waking up in the morning and reading that there's uh, an event like rising construction costs, or that builders are going broke, and we we hadn't been aware of that for some time in advance, you know, like, you know, I think I sort of started seeing construction costs rising in 2021, and it kind of really started making mainstream media in sort of mid to late 2022. And so, you know, it, it, we, we've already adjusted to that. And, uh, and, and what we tend to prefer to do is to back clients or borrowers where we've got an existing relationship with a group that have demonstrated a prior track record of performance and, and we have a relationship and we've got good access to information to be able to assess and manage the risk. We have, you know, over the, over the last, you know, 12, 18 months, you know, naturally uh, been more cautious in terms of companies that we lend to because business or economic conditions were forecast to deteriorate. And so, therefore, you, you, you adjust the terms and conditions, market liquidity becomes tighter, which means it's actually a great environment for a lender because the risk that you take in lending to a company reduces you're able to negotiate tighter terms and conditions and covenants, and you're also able to pass through a higher cost of funding or a higher margin. And so you're actually getting better lending opportunities now than you did, say, 12 to 24 months ago. And that's borne out in terms of the spreads that we've been delivering for our investors, both in MXT and MOT. The, the returns for investors in those funds have improved, reflecting that sort of market dynamic. But importantly, you know what we what we have to look at is you know if if things deteriorate in terms of business or economic conditions, then we just need to make sure that when we're when we're lending to a company that we've got a very strong basis on upon which we believe that that company is going to perform regardless of the deterioration. And and interesting when we look at our portfolio, you know people sort of say, oh, sub investment grade borrowers represent the greatest level of risk. Well, as of the end of May. Uh, I can sort of say that about 70% of the companies that we lend to that are rated sub-investment grade are actually doing better financially this year than they did in 2022, notwithstanding the increase in interest rates. And so we have seen, you know, from May of 2022, conditions deteriorated, a number of the companies that we were lending to were not doing as well as they had the prior 12 months, and then in, in, in recent months, uh, that trend has turned around. Now, whether or not that's companies responding in the form of cutting costs, you know, and, and you know, in this environment, it's hard to get top-line revenue growth. So management teams to have, you know, flat to declining earnings would be expected unless management teams can adjust. They might be pushing through price rises or they might be cutting costs to preserve or grow earnings. And so good quality management teams are able to deliver that even in difficult market conditions, you know, and that's, and that's what we're seeing across our portfolio. Yeah, I'm seeing that at quite a lot as well. A lot of people I'm speaking to, there's businesses that were used to be growth at any price and now it's all about watching the bottom line, tighten that belt. Um, yeah. I had a conversation with Farmer the other day, and they're they're the entire strategy is essentially you know wait for that turn in a thematic and looking for the company that survives, um, scrap it's, at the bottom, and, and then it's rational. They survive at the bottom, you yeah. know, they're hardened like after a war. Then they mm. essentially pick up whatever's left, and you know I think it's a fantastic mm. strategy. You have to have a lot of patience to be able to do that, but um, mm. yeah, I can understand. Again, uh, that's the difference, isn't it? That's the difference yeah. between debt and equity. Yeah. As a lender, I'm looking for companies that can generate earnings and cash flow. Regardless uh, what happens. Shareholders in, shareholders in the most recent sort of market run were prepared mm. to uh, 
lend money or invest money in companies that had not yet proven a business plan or a business strategy, had no point of difference and were losing money. Uh, and those companies have obviously struggled in terms of gaining continued access to capital to fund their operations and that's where they fail. When you lend to a company, what's the um, type of, what's the ideal type of company? Oh, that's a terrible question. Like what's the minimum size of a company you would look to lend to? Like uh, yeah, what, are the, what are the size loans? Cover. What's the cost of money? Yeah. Like what's essentially, can yeah. you give us an example? We, we, we would sort of do everything sort of from, you know, 25 million to 250 million in terms of loan size. Um, and, and most companies would sort of, that we would lend to would be sort of, you know, 15 to $20 million in earnings as a minimum. Um, and, and large, large property projects, you know, 200 plus apartments, you know, 400, 400 lot land subdivisions, large scale industrial development projects and the like. So they're not, not small. Uh, companies mm. and often it might be that it might be ourselves together with one or two other banks that might be providing the financing to the company um, it might be you know very rarely would we do transactions where there are other, there are other non-bank lenders most of the transactions that we enter into would be ourselves and banks providing the debt financing to, to companies or if it's a property transaction it might be ourselves on a sole basis providing you know funding for the whole of the project. What's the current cost for money in that for these um, projects currently? Yeah, it varies, right? So yeah. uh, it's, such a, it's such an interesting question, right? Because it, it, depending on the credit quality and the availability of capital for a particular borrower, you know, high, high investment grade borrowers might be borrowing at, say, a margin of 2%, uh, whereas a sub-investment grade borrower might be paying 500 or, you know, 5 to 6% as a margin. Or if it's a mezzanine transaction, it might be you know fifteen to twenty percent. Um, yeah, it really just depends on where you sit in the capital structure, the availability of capital, uh, the risk that a lender thinks they are taking, and then what is the appropriate return that should be negotiated with that uh, with that borrower. Yeah, yeah, we're, seeing, actually, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of private lending account. running around like 12 to 15% currently. And then on the conservative side, you know, it's RBA plus five. Now, that's why I was just curious because the deals that you're doing yeah. are a substantially larger size. And, you know, these are the mm. things that people are coming to ask for on the private side or other friends. But, you know, this is what you do. So I was just very curious what the cost of. I've seen a lot of uh, lenders say that, you know, you should be generating X return. Well, you know, it doesn't work that way. You know, as a as a as a private market fund manager, you know, you can, you know, at the end of it, it's credit quality that is the most important thing that you can deliver for investors: protection, preservation of capital, don't and lose then money. making sure you're generating. Yeah, don't lose money, and then don't, just rule make number sure one: you're don't lose money. What's rule yeah. number two? Don't lose money. <laughs> don't forget <laughs> number one. And then and beat so inflation. You, That's all that matters. Yeah, and, and and that's and that's at the end of it. That's what we're about. You know, we, we've been very clear that at the end of it, um, we we need to, you know, first and foremost is protect and preserve investor capital, um, and take appropriate action to lend to good companies on appropriate terms, protecting the downside risk. But at the same time, use our skill set in terms of the relationships, networks, and and speed and service to be able to generate a return for investors through fees and margins that can be charged to those companies. We're not trying to, you know, at the end of it, our role is to provide a service uh, to the companies that we lend money to. We, we believe that we provide a high level of service. We're responsive. We've got a range of different solutions that can be provided to that company to support their activities. But we do that and we invest in the relationship with the companies because we believe it delivers good outcomes for our investors. And so that relationship, that service is important in terms of making sure that you're charging a fair price for the credit that you're providing. We think that our investors provide a valuable source of non-bank finance to a company as a means to help those companies diversify their sources of risk um, away from the banks. And so therefore, we believe that uh, you know, our investors should be rewarded appropriately with an appropriate return for that risk. So on the on the interest rates, thank you very much for that. Uh, on the interest rates, you know, uh, the cash rate is what four point one right now. If that, you know, I just remember the GFC. Everyone's like, oh, it's never going to get to where it got, and then it got there. So I'm just going on the logic that, you know, 
it's anchoring theory, right? You know, oh, I can't go there because of what happened last time. So, you know, on the basis that potentially an event occurs that everyone's yeah. like, oh, that can't happen. Uh, you know, what, what do you think yeah. the impact of markets will be? Like, uh, in, sorry, in the, in the lending space and property, like what do you think the yeah. actual impact will be? I think there are a lot of people that didn't think rates would get as high as they are today, you know, but uh, at the end of it, um, the Reserve Bank is clearly, you know, in, in attempting to slow economic activity. Um, you know, we haven't seen any material uplift in unemployment levels. We've got a lot of uh, companies that are in strong financial position. Uh, we've got, you know, a very tight um, housing market. We've got, you know, increasing immigration flows. There's a, there's a range of pressures in the economy, but, um, you know, I, I think that anyone that sort of, um, you know, makes decisions based on oh, it can't get any worse than it is today or they didn't forecast a, a material change is not taking appropriate action. You know, like at the end of it, um, we don't we don't lend on the basis of, you know, uh, she'll be right, or you know, that it's only going to be one basis. You know, yeah, but, one, yeah, but people borrow on the basis of, yeah, she'll be right. It can't go much higher, can it? Surely. And then you can't go to a barbecue now without someone going, I didn't think my mortgage is going to go up 200% in the past six months. Surely it's not going to go up any higher. And they'd like, you know, yes, it's just, you know, normal human beings at the lower level, but the domino impact, mm. it decreases the capacity of what they could spend, their discretionary income. It yeah. just ticks and ticks and ticks. And this yeah. is the companies. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's just a material yeah. slowdown. So I was, that's right. Look, as you, this is what you and, do. And, so and I'm very curious of what you're seeing the impacts will be in your area and then the domino effect of what you think the outcome will be. Oh, look, I think... Sorry, a bit too much um, of a crystal ball, but I'm just very curious to... No, no, no. I think it's, it's fair, right? Seeing. Because at the end of it, I, I, I look at it and sort of say, you know, revenue should slow. Um, you know, valuation should be declining because of rising interest rates. Um, some of that hasn't flowed through yet. So, you know, the way management teams will respond to the demands from shareholders to generate increased earnings will be to address costs. And generally to address costs means rising unemployment. And um, we haven't haven't really seen that yet. So, you know, I, I think, um, you know, we, you know, we may we may be fortunate that you know as a result of some uh, sort of uh, easing of supply chain pressures, things may not continue to be as inflationary. But I think realistically, while we've got a, a war in Ukraine um, and while we've got continuing supply chain disruptions coming off the back of COVID, I think that it's going to take some time. You know, if I if I look at uh, the de- delays in in uh, certain industries in terms of access to supplies and those sorts of things, they're still materially impacted. Um, market conditions haven't restored, labour conditions haven't restored, and so there's still disruption flowing through and that may take some time. And then, you know, so I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I think from our perspective, we remain cautious in terms of how we, how we see the market. And over the last, you know, 12, 18 months, We've really been giving priority to existing borrower relationships, um, you know, to, to help us manage manage the risk across our portfolios. Um, you know, it's uh, and I think that's a, a sensible approach in any period where you've got you know volatile business or economic or uncertain business or economic conditions for a lender. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Now, uh, conscious of time, we'll get into a bit of the, the mechanics. Um, so, what are the fees <laughs> for the fund? How's the, and how's the uh, fee structured? Yep. Yep. So MXT, MXT and uh, the Metrics Direct Income Fund. So MXT is the Metrics Master Income Trust ASX listed. Um, MDIF or the Metrics Direct Income Fund is an unlisted managed fund version of MXT. Bit of a convoluted way to say it, but that's uh, that's the reality of it. Both of them are, are similar in terms of fee construct, which is around about total cost of about 60 basis points to an investor. Um, and there are some performance fees if we outperform um, various return targets. Um, MOT is really more of a, uh, um, a high yielding fund where we also seek to deliver equity upside. And so that particular fund, not only do we lend money to companies, but 
if we can secure warrants or options or take an equity stake in the company, we'll do that to drive additional value for our investors. So it might be that we've negotiated a profit share or something. So um, in that particular fund, uh, the management fee is around about 125 basis points and the total cost to an investor is around about 140 basis points, so 1.4% total cost to an investor. Um, that fund seeks to deliver a minimum return of cash, a cash coupon of 7%, um, and, uh, and that was being delivered when the RBA cash rate was 10 basis points. Uh, so the, the target was set back in 2019. But obviously, you know, we, we obviously think that given the market conditions, we'll exceed that now uh, with a total return um, for investors between 8 to 10%. And again, uh, given where market conditions are, that target return should be exceeded as a result of, you know, just the general, general uptick in terms of rates and opportunity set for us. And um, the direct income fund? The, uh, direct the income fund. The metrics direct income fund is yeah, about sixty basis points total cost. Right, got it. So the difference between the difference between metrics direct income fund and the metrics master income trust. Yeah. Metrics master income trust ASX listed. People can buy and sell on the stock exchange daily. Metrics direct income fund. It's unlisted, so you'd reduce the risk around how it might trade on the stock exchange. So more likely to trade at the NAV. But liquidity is available monthly, so you know you've got two I'm different sorry, options. Are they, the, are they the same portfolios? And yeah, then so essentially, the the uh, MXT is what a trusted essentially owns shares in the in the funds to provide liquidity to trades. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah that, and, that may... and MBIF is the same. Yeah. So, okay. You know, MXT at the moment is about a five percent discount to its NAV, uh, whereas people buying on the unlisted fund are paying five uh, percent more for the same portfolio, but they're doing that on the basis they believe it's less risk because of the traded price on the ASX. Yeah, we discuss that quite a lot with clients. Um, so with uh, alignment, um, how the reason why we ask the question of remuneration is what we've learned with behavioral psychology we've seen in the years is how people are remunerated generally derives you know the decisions they make when they're making investments. So essentially, how, how's the remuneration structured? For, for metrics, for yeah. myself and my partners. We, oh, we, how's it all work? You know, wholly, wholly aligned with the interests of our investors. We own 65% of the business. Um, you know, we, we pay ourselves a wage and a, and a dividend if we're successful. But, uh, you know, and it's the same with our employees. They're paid a wage and uh, they're paid a bonus based on uh, performance and that that performance is determined over a three-year period. So their bonus is paid out over, over a number of years subject it's to It's over a three-year period. Yeah, no, that, that's why I'm interested because, yeah. you know, sometimes, um, you know, you, if you do well in a quarter, you know, you get that bump, uh, you know, you, you shoot that extra 1% and then it incentivizes some managers to throw in a bit of the juice, so to speak, you know, a virgin bond here or there or yeah. something equivalent and that's when things go yeah. awry. So that's very interesting. Yeah. So you, you do a three-year uh, – where did that idea come from? Because, that, uh, that yeah, that, that long-term good. average is very interesting. It's very much the way um, APRA has has formed the view that that's best practice for banks. Yeah, right. Uh, in term, and you remember most of the people that work in our business have worked in banks or have come from financial services. And so, you know, that's the, that's the culture. So the culture is very much designed to align the interests of the employee and the management firm with the longer-term interests of our investors. And so I think all of, I'd be very disappointed if there was a position that people said that metrics funds are not uh, investor friendly. I think all of the funds in terms of the fee rates, the way in which we've structured them, uh, the, the way in which we've delivered on returns for investors is all, all designed to deliver a great outcome for, for, for people that have invested in our funds. And I'm pretty pleased to say that's what's been delivered over the last 10 years. No, it really has. Um, that's very interesting. Thank you for that. So, um, is there anything, any other thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with? Um, no, I think I think that's been a pretty good summary. Um, obviously, if there's if anyone's interested, there's a lot more information that can be obtained. Um, but I think you know, like all of these things, I think. Uh, you know, it's a really important to assess the skill set, the quality of the management team. 
you know, their track record, what's the, you've asked all the right questions in terms of size, scale, the types of transactions, what drives the investment decision from a risk and return perspective, what are the fees, what can an investor expect, what are the risks. So I think we've covered an awful lot of ground and I, I hope that's been helpful for your listeners. I think it's been very, very helpful. Um, specifically, where can they reach you if they want more information? Uh, then go to our website um, and uh, we'll speak to a good financial planner, financial advisor, and um, and get information. Um, obviously, we have a relationship with Pinnacle Investments who also assist on the distribution. And so there's, uh, there's a number of ways in which people can get in contact with us or via Pinnacle or via their financial advisor. There's, you know, we've had a real commitment also in terms of providing uh, research material to the market to help investors understand. So on our website, there's a lot of um, different uh, video clips and material on, on different conferences and things like that that we've presented LinkedIn uh, or through some of the, the research groups like Zenith and Lonsec and Bond Advisor and others that have uh, researched our funds as well. Fantastic. And of course, well, being publicly listed on the ASX means that we're subject to continuous disclosure obligations. So there's always uh, good information via the ASX as well. It always helps. Andrew Lockhart, thank you very much for your time. I found that very, very interesting and uh, definitely keen to catch up again in the years, see how things get going. Thanks very much. Really appreciate your time. All right. Thanks. Bye. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation, and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.